First, though, we are talking about the announcement made earlier today, and this has to do with changes when it comes to emergency care in British Columbia. For paramedics, this means the ability to provide more life-saving interventions, which at various licensing levels can include needle decompression for major chest trauma to support breathing, using portable ultrasound to better assess patients and inform care decisions, enhancing airway management skills, and providing life-supporting or sustaining medications during transport. That was Health Minister Adrian Dix speaking earlier today. Joining us now is Troy Clifford, who is the Ambulance Paramedics Union president, also an active paramedic. Troy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill. Uh, My pleasure coming on. How much will this actually change what paramedics do in the field? Well, you know, this is not a new subject that's been discussed, as the minister talked about. And um, the expanded scope uh, involves 43 recommendations or accepted recommendations um, for all license levels, right from first responder up to our critical care paramedics. And about half of them involve uh, our EMR and up, which is our paramedic designations right up to critical care. And some of them will be absolutely essential for uh, expanded scope and skills that can provide meaningful um, treatment and transport uh, protocols and and skills for to help our patients. Uh, so absolutely, it'll be essential. Some of the first responder stuff will definitely help uh, with immediate interventions in their role as first responders, uh, for sure. Um, um, we do have some concerns, obviously, and I'm still absorbing all this. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in there, and there's some some hidden gems. I hope in there. Um, so yeah, so there's it's a, it's a lot to absorb, and it, I know it's complicated for the public to understand. But in the end of the day, there is a there is a move to more evidence based clinical uh, support for paramedics and first responders to provide care on the streets. When you talk about what paramedics can do, though, I guess where I was a bit confused is I know there are different levels of paramedics and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I was I thought that it was just the first level that couldn't do something like uh, putting a needle in on the scene or in an ambulance. So will it change it just for that group or does this change it for everybody? It changes it for all levels, depending on the scope, your uh, license level you are there. So there's a number of levels. First responders, which is fire and uh, private organizations or volunteer groups. First responders, they're designated as the initial sort of primary intervention skill set. Basic first aid is what you're talking about normally. Um, and they're, they're uh, announced some changes to that level. And then there's emergency medical responder, uh, primary care paramedic, advanced care paramedic, and critical care paramedic. And those are all our various levels. And critical care paramedics are what you see in the helicopters, um, they're essentially an ICU in, in, a, in an aircraft or on the ground ambulance, and they go into communities and move. They're the ones that are moving those critically uh, COVID patients from the north, 150 of them, I think he said last week. So they're our highest trained um, experts, and that includes our critical care adults and our infant transport uh, critical care paramedics. And then advanced care paramedics, uh, the scopes are all different levels, but they provide um, advanced airway and that. So each of these uh, additional things. So one of the things at the critical care level was the, the ultrasound capacity, portable ultrasound, um, and enhanced airway management and medication during transport. And so those when, are all good oh, things for patients. Sorry, go ahead. Those are all really good things for patients. But when you say you have some concerns, and I agree with you, it was a lot of information released today, but when you say you have some concerns, what concerns do you have? Well, our primary concerns are really around um, the the uh, how is this going to be implemented uh, it, with increased scope, 
uh, for all levels it, it includes responsibility, accountability. Our, our, uh, what we've been pushing for is really around medical oversight um, and governance, consistent training, continuing competencies, all the things that paramedics um, at, from the EMR level on up have had to, had to con- adhere to. But the first responders have had a different playing field in the past by the nature of what the first responder role really is. Um, and with it increased scope and drugs and, and uh, protocols, um, the, what we're suggesting is that that needs to have a medical oversight, a uh, governance to protect patients, uh, consistent training, accredited training, um, uh, continuing competency, which means you have to submit your credits, all those sorts of things. So we all, what we're saying is it has to be a level playing field for all licensed responders, including first responders. Um, and that wasn't, it didn't go to that far in the announcement. So we need to, we need to understand that. And we've been expressing that to the ministry and that was some of the feedback we gave. We absolutely support enhanced scope for all levels of licensure, but it has to be done with uh, the goal of evidence-based medical uh, treatments and for the right reasons. And it has to be safe for the patients. And that includes consistent training, the governance I was talking about, medical oversight, that's what we're based on. Um, and as well, consistent uh, continuing competency to demonstrate your competency, documentation, all those sorts of things that have had different playing fields for first responders versus paramedics. So, um, and none of this changes what really is the issue. We need more paramedics to treat and transport patients to the hospital. We need more dispatchers. So a little bit in a way, although we support this and we absolutely uh, appreciate all the efforts that are being put into trying to enhance the ambulance service, we still have underlying issues that we, we don't have enough ambulances and paramedics and we're psychologically mentally injured. So I, I'm looking at that. And what does that mean when he talks about uh, what more support for paramedics and dispatchers psychologically? We need to see the content of that. What does that actually translate into how, when I'm injured psychologically because of this job, does that translate into me getting the proper care? Um, so there's a lot of things that are there. Um, the emergency preparedness component that they uh, we're in there that they're going to work together with us to ensure that that's absolutely crucial because we've been uh, you know that was exposed in the heat zone so there's a number of questions we have and i'm optimistic we'll be able to work with the ministry and the bchs to work through these as well as the malb but there are definitely some concerns about i think it's a little premature to start giving more scope to without all those administrative and and safety measures well-documented and well-established so we understand what the implications of this are. And it's really, in the end, this is not going to address people getting an ambulance in a timely fashion or having their 911 call when they need it in their emergency entered in a quicker state time. So I think those are really what we're, we're trying to focus our attention on. Right. Uh, but we welcome these changes. Right. So would, would a concern be then with the larger scope for other first responders, if there's a scenario where something goes wrong, does the question then come out of who's to be held accountable? Yeah, I think all licenses, you know, our paramedics and dispatchers are held accountable to high standards. And, I, and what we're saying is that if we're going to increase scope and responsibility and, you know, given epinephrine and, and, and the and additional responsibilities, Come with it, uh, uh, you know, it's not just a matter. You have to understand the consequences of, of giving these medications and, and, and these treatments. Um, and that's where we're saying the training and the, uh, the oversight needs to be there so that we can hold, hold the, all of us accountable and protect the patients. And that's our primary goal. Um, 
you know, fire departments and first responders are crucial for critical interventions, and that's their focus of their training previously. Um, so we, we believe and have been always maintained that's important to have that critical. They're part of the whole integrated care, but uh, we also need to make sure that uh, who's paying for this. So, you know, the, you know, you know, we've heard from the municipalities. They're stretched for financial. So putting more responsibilities downloaded onto municipalities it's not uh, going to be received well, I don't imagine, by those municipalities uh, when it's a provincial mandate to provide ambulance services. So that uh, is a question we'd have, and, and that's not for us to question, but I think that needs to be worked out before we start implementing uh, these expanded scope and, and downloading those additional costs onto municipalities, because I'm sure many of those communities that are strapped for funding will have some challenges with that. And Troy, just only have about a minute left, but I did want to ask you as well, your thoughts on the changes to 911, where call takers don't have to stay on the line when people are being transferred to ambulance. Do you have any concerns about that? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's, I've been talking a few days about that. And that's a deviation from long established practice that is concerning, is that when people call 911 in a time of emergency, when they don't have somebody on the line to transfer, and unfortunately, uh, uh, 911 operators being left on the phone uh, with no skills to provide medical instructions, and that's not their, their responsibility. And, and, and that's really a problem with the delay of ambulance, have not having enough ambulance dispatchers or call takers. And, you know, I was pleased to see that we've, uh, he was able to announce what we already knew, was they were added more than the 30. But we've still got a long ways to go to make sure that nobody in their time of need, when they dial 911 and needs an ambulance, has to wait on hold because that's really the underlying issue I think for ecom and the 911 operators. But I'm concerned that uh, somebody in their time in need wouldn't have even a emergency uh, 911 operator on the phone to ensure that continuity and transfer. All right, we'll have to leave it there, Troy. Thanks so much for making the time for us today. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, yesterday during the flooding update, we got an update on some of the losses that have come from the Fraser Valley flooding. And we know things are looking better today, some optimism, but still a lot of cleanup. And this is the agriculture minister when giving the numbers yesterday on those losses. Currently, there are still about 819 farms that are under evacuation. We know at this point there are 628,000 poultry reported dead, 420 dairy cattle deceased, and approximately 12,000 hogs. And also of note, there is 110 beehives that have been submerged. That was Agriculture Minister Lana Popham. Let's bring in Holger Swichtenberg, who is the chair of the BC Dairy Association, also a dairy farmer in Agassiz. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Well, good afternoon. Glad to do it. Uh, those numbers, uh, I know, were, were shocking, I think, to a lot of people, although the losses we know are also still being calculated. How are things in Agassiz right now? In Agassiz, we're fine. The, the sun is shining, and it's, you, would, you wouldn't know in Agassiz that things 30 kilometers west of us are not doing so well. There are quite a number of cattle still in Agassiz and Chilo, but ourselves, we are fine. And what about, oh, sorry, go ahead. And our milk is being picked up again. That is, that is good news. What about, though, uh, I know you've been helping out those uh, in the Sumas Prairie and areas that were quite hard hit. Uh, how are things there? So we took in 30 cattle um, early on. I think it was the Tuesday, the 15th. Those cattle have gone back to their farm. They left on Friday, last week, Friday. So some of the farms are getting back to normal. 
some of the farms in the harder hit areas and the low part of the lake, those cattle are still on farms in Chilliwack and in Agassiz. And I know there was the roundtable. Were you part of the roundtable that was held last night with the agriculture minister and the federal minister? Yes, I was privileged to be part of that. Uh, was anything uh, kind of any, a plan made or, or what was your takeaway from that meeting? Well, I think as a dairy farmer or involved in the industry that we have to recognize that we're not the only ones that are affected by this. When I heard the numbers of the poultry and the pork losses and the blueberry farms, etc. So there's, it's not just us. And I think that message came home to me. And now the conversation starts. How are we going to get this all sorted out and some sort of uh, normalcy coming back? And I imagine that's going to take weeks, if not months. Uh, and we also heard uh, from the, the mayor of Abbotsford earlier today, uh, Henry Braun, saying, uh, giving the numbers as well for blueberry farmers, saying uh, that if those crops have been wiped out, then it could, it's not a matter of another season. It's going to be a matter of years before they're back up and running and profitable again. Uh, are we seeing losses like that or, or timelines like that for, for farmers like yourself that have lost things or uh, the other farmers that, that are still, still dealing with this uh, with the flooding? Yeah, so again, we are fine, but um, I'm not sure if, if your grass field or your cover crops went underwater, they can probably handle about a week, but this is, we're working on week three now, if not longer. So there'll be a serious amount of replanting going on. It won't be quite as productive as before. And I've also been told that with blueberries, yeah, if you're underwater for three weeks, that's it. You're taking them out and you're starting over. And a little bit on some of the, the forage production, the sumas area as well, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, you mentioned so good where you are as far as the, the milk is being picked up. Are there still scenarios where, like in the beginning, when farmers were dumping their milk, that's still the case? Yes. So there is still some dumping going on in the Sumash Prairie, simply because they still can't get there. And even if the road is clear of water, it still has to be checked. Can the big trucks, the last thing you want is a big truck flipping over because the road giving way. And there still are challenges getting milk out of the interior because it all has to come along Highway 3. And that's a much longer, slower route than the Coquihalla and the Fraser Canyon were. Right. And, and what is the, have you been, were you given an update as far as working on those roadways or what the, the forecast is for getting those roads back up and closer to, to looking normal again? So, I mean, optimistically, they're hoping to have some temporary repairs done on the Coquihalla you know, mid end of February, I think we as an industry are keeping our fingers crossed that Highway 3 stays open and that we're able to get the milk down here. And then, of course, um, dairy products back up into the interior. So we're hopeful that the Coquihalla gets reopened, but we're keeping our fingers crossed that the number three stays open going into the winter. Right. And, and even with that highway open, how much of an impact does that have with truckers having to take that route rather than the Coquihalla? So what happens, Jill, is that, the, the, you know, all you have to employ more trucks to move the same amount of material because it takes much longer, the, the, the turnaround time from the Okanagan or let's say up from the Smithers area to get the milk to the processing plants to Fraser Valley. It takes much longer, so you need more trucks to move the same amount of product because they can't go back and forth as quickly. Right. And I would imagine that's just a, that's another kind of hurdle or another obstacle that will just have to be dealt with. Yeah, well, that's one of many obstacles to hurdles that we're dealing with is getting the milk picked up in the Fraser Valley, getting the milk out of the interior, getting all the roads back up to speed, making sure that the roads are passable by milk trucks and grain trucks. 
and getting cows production back up and running. So we're not out of the woods yet, but we're we're getting there. We're well, that, slowly getting. <laughs> that is that is some optimism. That is good to hear. Uh, I know BC's minister uh, talked about the fact that we don't know the full cost of the devastation. We don't know exactly what it's going to take to restock to replace uh, all that's been lost. But are you, are you concerned at all that because we don't know that, or we don't know what the recovery package is going to look like, are you, are you concerned about it kind of falling off the radar? I certainly hope it doesn't fall off the radar. There's a lot of work to be done in our industry and other industries as well. And it's, you know, it's a large part of what feeds British Columbia is what takes place in the Sumas Prairie. So I'm confident that government, federal and provincial will be there to help us get to the other side. And of course, a lot of the dairy farmers and other farmers will roll up their sleeves and start cleaning up and, and trying to get back to the new normal. And does the new normal look different as far as even the land in that? Do you think it's going to be, there will be permanent changes in even the amount of land or what that area is going to look like? Well, I think what I, when I see the new normal is just the importance of the dikes remaining intact, the importance of dealing with the Nooksack River when it goes over, and that, you know, when something like this happens, people are a lot more cognizant of what can happen and how quickly it can happen, and that perhaps next time, we're a little more prepared, hopefully. When you look at what's happened, and there are so many people that are asking how they can help, but the general public asking how they can help, what do you tell people, or what, what is your advice for those who would like to help out? To, to be blunt, the best is always monetary donations to their several groups that have set up to get the you know money to the farmers. Of course, volunteer labor is appreciated, um, a lot of farms at this end, we volunteered to take cattle. Um, those are some of the things that can, that have happened and continue to happen. But again, it's it's like in a lot of these situations. In the end, it comes down to finances and trying to get you know enough money together to get your place cleaned up and repaired and equipment replaced and and get back to producing food for British Columbians. And when we look at that number, too, the number of 420 dairy cattle deceased because of this flooding, because of this event, where do you even begin to, when it gets to the, to the point where, where things are, are back and able to start up again, how, where do you get the dairy cattle to replace them? So, you know, BC's got, you know, I think in total about 70,000 cattle. So the, I was very unfortunate that 480 didn't make it. But I don't think that's going to have such a large impact because that wasn't only lactating cows. That was younger animals and young stock and some dairy cows. Um, while it's unfortunate we've lost that, those we managed to save most of them. And they will hopefully be getting back to full production anytime in, in the next in the near future. All right. What's next for you then, as far as, like you said, things are looking really good in Agassiz. What do you do next as a farmer in the, in the Fraser Valley? Well, we, um, our cows were on half rations for two weeks because there was a shortage of grain and getting grain into the Fraser Valley. So our production has suffered. So we're now slowly feeding them more grain, hopefully getting them back up to their normal production levels. Um, we're going to square up with the farm that had some cattle at our place. And we're going to do our level best to help our fellows across the Sumas, across the canal, that any help they need, volunteer labor or equipment, that we can be as helpful as possible to get them going again. All right. Well, Holger, thank you so much. I know it's a busy time, but thank you for joining us and giving us this update. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for asking. Take care. Well, have your shopping habits changed because of the pandemic? If you said yes, well, you are not alone. And a new survey shows just how much they have changed. Joining us now is Mario Conseco, the president of Research Co. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jill. Great to be here. Great to have you. What did you ask people in this particular survey? We wanted to see how the pandemic has affected what we do. Are you going out for dinner less? Are you doing different things now than you did back in 2019? And, you know, we were expecting a change in the way we're shopping for things, whether it's gifts or things for the family or the home, or even something as easy as buying groceries. And we do see a lot of changes that are definitely guided by generations. And a lot of people, it seems like they have changed or altered how much they're going out and actually going into whether it's restaurants or coffee shops or stores. Well, that one was definitely eye-catching. I think it's a combination of factors. One of them is uh, the fact that people may not feel safe going to restaurants right now, but also because they're thinking that the pandemic might worsen. You know, this is a survey that we conducted before the Omicron variant, so there's still a lot of concerns about the way things are going, and maybe not a lot of disposable income. You know, we have 60% of BC residents who say they are going for breakfast less often, for lunch, 62%, and for dinner, 66 So that's three out of five British Columbians who say, I am not partaking in this activity as much as I did two years ago. And and you mentioned it there that for some people, they might not feel safe or don't want to be in crowds. But did you ask people specifically why, if, if, it's, if it was that or if it was a money issue, they were trying to cut back on spending or why they were not going out as much? It's definitely a combination of factors. You know, there's a, a little bit of a shift when we look at the findings by household income. And, you know, this isn't to suggest that those who are making less every year are the ones who are saving or that, you know, if you have a lot of money to spend, you're doing it. You know, I think there's definitely a concern across all household income brackets um, that this is something that maybe is not the best time to do. And this definitely is, uh, fits the same pattern that we saw a couple of weeks ago when we were asking about travel. You know, a lot of people who are used to traveling at this time of the year who are saying, I'm going to stay home. And again, this is before Omicron, so maybe the numbers have shifted. Right. And I wonder, too, when you talk about travel, I think for a lot of people, it's the added uh, the added expense of testing, the inconvenience of testing, the stress that's added to it, because you don't know for sure that you're going to get your test back in enough time to make your flight to, to get to your destination, which seems like a lot more than than if somebody was going to say, oh, well, it's inconvenient to have to show my vaccine certificate and my ID when going to a restaurant. You know, we are seeing a lot of that on the travel front. Uh, You know, there are people who just don't like to travel. They don't enjoy going to the airport. They don't enjoy waiting for things. It's already a stressful experience for a lot of British Columbians. But if you add to this the mask mandates, the situations related to testing, uh, making sure that everybody else on your flight or on your bus is following the same guidelines as you are, that is leading a lot of people to say, maybe we should just wait another year before seeing the family. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Yeah. To, to look at that. You also bro- broke it down as far as you mentioned age. Uh, what other types of factors came into who's going out or dining out more or less? There's a little bit of a shift when we look at the issue by ethnicity. You know, we have 70 percent of British Columbians of East Asian descent who are dining out less often than they did before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, the numbers are also high for European uh, residents and, and those of First Nations origins. 
So the group that is essentially dying out almost at the same rate as they did before is South Asians. You know, it's essentially a very big change when we look at the numbers. Those who are South Asian are saying, I, I think I, I, I will be safe and I want to continue going out to restaurants. We just don't see the same from the other uh, uh, respondents in the survey. Hmm. You also asked people about shopping online and not just purchasing things like clothing or gifts, but also groceries and staples. What kind of response did you get to that? You know, we were expecting people to say that they were shopping online more for gifts, and that wasn't unexpected. The big shift from a generational standpoint certainly was. Uh, but to have 22% of British Columbians saying that they are purchasing groceries online more often than they did before the COVID-19 pandemic is certainly eye-catching. You know, we didn't have a situation where now we are more likely to be able to go to specific grocery stores and people are starting to remain on with the same uh, situation that they had when COVID-19 was rampant. You know, we all remember those moments in March or April of maybe having to order groceries online because you didn't want to get infected. We have one out of five British Colombians who say, this was interesting and I want to continue doing it. I don't need to test every apple or every melon to make sure that it's going to be okay. Which is interesting because I do recall talking to you about this pre-pandemic and that was one of the things people said that they didn't want to shop, especially for groceries online, was because the produce, you didn't want somebody else to be in charge of picking out what produce you were going to get. But it seems like times have really changed. Well, and it's certainly changing more for the younger generation. You know, we do see a lot of resistance from the over 55s when it comes to buying everything online. And in fact, when we ask people, how do you like buying things? We have this big generational divide. You know, the over 55s are saying, I want to go to the store for anything, for a gift, for something for my family, for groceries. Whereas the 18 to 34 year olds got used to this. You know, they get everything from the phone. They're definitely happy with the situation that we have. And this places a challenge for retailers. You know, how can you make your stores more attractive if the younger people don't want to be there and the older people don't want to order online? I wonder too, and I don't know if you got into it in this survey, but when we first started talking about this as well, one of the things was people wanted to support local businesses and wanted to keep their money in the community if they could. And there was the association that buying online didn't do that for the most part. But we did see so many businesses shift and offer online options and offer different ways of buying their things that I wonder if that's kind of changed the attitude as well. It has moved it significantly. One of the things that we've seen uh, for the past year and a half is the explosion on, on home delivery for food. You know, people using apps and calling restaurants. It has helped the restaurants that were quicker on the draw. I think there was a situation, especially when we had all of that money floating around from various levels of, of, of a government. Uh, do we try to make our restaurant COVID-19 proof? Do we invest in plexiglass and social distancing? Or do we play a little bit more with the idea of becoming somebody who delivers food? And we've seen some of those restaurants thrive and others having a much tougher time because they spend a lot of money on something that some people just don't want to do right now. And did you get the sense of these numbers and kind of the divide that you've talked about that it will change or that it's it's people wondering or thinking what's going to happen next in the pandemic or it's a permanent shift this way or it could shift back? You know, I think it's a matter of trying to figure this out in the next six months. You know, some of the fluctuations that we see were definitely surprising, uh, but it's ultimately what is going to happen with Generation X. You know, we know there's a preference uh, from the over 55s to go to stores and they're happy to do so and they're more likely to be wearing their masks and everything. 
the younger crowd is going is getting used to the online situation. So what is going to happen with, with Generation X? Are we going to be joining the millennials and ordering everything online from now on, even groceries? Or are we going to go back and share the nostalgia of the baby boomers and head on to stores? <laughs> big, big questions. All right, Mario, we will leave it there for today. But thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Gil. Anytime. Thanks for being with us. But coming up a bit later this half hour, we're going to talk about how somebody was busted at the U.S.-Canada border trying to use fake documents to get around the vaccine requirements. And a pretty, pretty crazy story using facial recognition technology. So we'll talk about that coming up. Right now, though, we are going to talk about the fact that today is International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And joining me to talk more about this is Dr. Jamie Borisoff, BCIT Canada Research Chair in Rehabilitation Engineering Design. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Well, thanks so much. I feel like we don't talk about this enough, so I'm glad we're talking about it today. And I wanted to check in with you because you researched this. I know you developed this, and you've really been working on this technology that helps people participate more fully in the community. Can you talk a bit more about what you've been working on? Absolutely, Jill. We have a couple of different themes in, in, in my lab. The first one is around mobility and primarily wheelchair mobility. And so we work on making wheelchairs more functional. We design accessories for them to make them uh, better used outdoors, for instance, on trails and, and beaches and, and snow. If we think about the rest of Canada, maybe not here. Well, maybe we're, maybe it's coming up here soon. True. Um, <laughs> and um, so, for instance, I've designed a wheelchair called Elevation, which a local company called PDG Mobility uh, makes now, and that lets you change your seat position and your seat height um, whenever you want to. Like if you want to reach a shelf, for instance, or want to talk to someone who, who's standing up, you can do that a bit more effectively. And if you want to come down into a more effective wheeling position for wheeling in the community, you can do that as well. Anytime you want, instantly you can do that. Um, another thing we're working on we call Swivel, which uh, we're calling the Stone go front wheel and that's an attachment you can put on the front of your wheelchair to help you on trails for instance and beaches because it lets you roll more easily across bad terrains but when you get to your destination say you want to go into a coffee shop because you're wheeling on the sidewalk it's great for urban wheeling mobility as well you can retract it instantly and it tucks into your frame and you can go into the the shop and and beyond go on with your day and yeah, so that's two, uh, one example, again, about the one theme around wheel mobility. Another thing we work on is exercise, because um, we know people with disabilities, people with spinal cord injuries have uh, problems getting proper cardiovascular exercise, um, so their fitness can't be maintained as well as able-bodied people's fitness can. So we design exercise machines and adaptations to exercise machines to make that easier to use. We have a couple projects in that regard. Uh, one of them is adapting roaring machines. Roaring machines are great because uh, they're muscles that complement uh, pushing a wheelchair. Pushing a wheelchair is all about pushing forward, and people develop uh, you know, very strong anterior muscles, the deltoids and the pecs. The roaring machines work your, the back of your muscles. But most roaring machines can't be used like many people with disabilities because they're difficult to transfer onto, and you can't maintain your stability. So we've designed a very simple adapter um, that will be actually available at Makers Making Change, which is a topic we're going to talk about in a minute, I hope. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but where somebody can almost do it yourself, make their own adaptation and, and adapt it to a roaring machine in their community or, or when they might have purchased at home. 
That is, that is great. And and just even talking about that, I remember talking about a story a few years ago about access to a beach, something that so many people take advantage or take just take it for granted that you go to the beach, you can walk on the sand, but obviously in a wheelchair, that's extremely difficult. And, and it sounds like just these things and, and paying some attention to these things really does open up these places. Yeah, absolutely. And what you're talking about is the user experience um, and gaps and barriers in people's lives. And, and my, my lab is embedded uh, in an organization called Make Plus, and that's a BCIT applied research group. And we really specialize in the user experience. It's understanding what the problem is and identifying the issue before we try solving the problem. I have an advantage because I'm a wheelchair user myself, so I'm, I'm facing these challenges um, every day. But uh, we, we, we can apply that kind of technique of uh, understanding the user experience to any kind of problem. And, and when you talk about things like the rowing machine and even getting uh, being able to access the rowing machine, uh, is it, it must be frustrating, though, because it is something, again, that people would look at a rowing machine and say, yeah, absolutely, that's a great exercise that would complement, but maybe aren't paying attention to the fact, like you said, that uh, sure, but if you can't transfer on and off of it and have stability, you can't use it anyway. Exactly. And it's an example of assistive technologies that are expensive and uh, people don't have access to because cost and access are the two biggest barriers to people with disabilities accessing the technologies they need. And that kind of takes us into um, a topic that we're really excited about today, which is um, an organization called Makers Making Change, which is a program actually run by an organization called the Neil Squire Society that are bringing awareness to this assistive technology issue um, around the world. And of course, with the, the UN Day here, uh, the persons with disability, it's just a great time to talk about these things. Yeah, so what is Makers Making Change and, and how can people get involved? So people can get involved right now, which is really cool. So. Um, uh, I, I put this out to all the listeners right now. How would you like to take part in a Guinness World Record attempt? Mm-hmm. Today, all day until, I, I believe, midnight our time, you can log on to atworldrecord.com. That's atworldrecord.com. And sign up to take a course, a 30-minute course, and learn about assistive technology. You, if you do that, you will learn about the barriers and challenges we've been talking about. And you'll learn how you can help. Because... Um, do-it-yourself assistive technology is something that Makers Making Change specializes in. They provide resources, instructions, and the tools so anybody can help make a piece of technology for their neighbor, for their family member, for their friend. Um, So it's kind of a really cool program. You'll learn all about people with disabilities, some of the challenges they have, and how, you know, relatively simple technologies and volunteers can help make a, a big difference. I've just uh, opened up the website. I won't take the class right now because I still have to host the rest of the show, but I will do it as soon as we're off the air because I'm looking at it now. So this is great. You're you're looking to, to break the record for the most users to take an online DIY assistive technology lesson in a 24-hour period. Yeah, that's a bit of a mouthful, but you know, really the goal <laughs> is to you know bring awareness to this issue. And it's been a, a really fun day to, to be involved with. And it's a fun way to, to do that as well, but also talking about some, some serious issues. And I know uh, there have been people on social media today talking about this, that it is the International Day, but uh, talking about how we still have so much work to do when it comes to making sure building codes are accessible, uh, buildings are accessible, and making small changes that would make such big differences. You know, that, that's 
some great comments. Um, I have this Wendell anecdote I, I like to tell that, that speaks a lot to that. And um, it was just a few years ago, probably like just a year before COVID, I, would, I went into a new restaurant in, in, in Vancouver that opened up recently and, you know, wheeled in and every single table was one of these um, fashionable uh, bar stool level tables. Um, so there wasn't in, a, you know, in the entire place uh, a table that was low, kind of a conventional table, right? Mm-hmm. That was low down, and you know it, it's it was really interesting. So how, why can an establishment like that get a liquor license and and open it up to the public without a single table that is quote unquote wheelchair accessible? Fortunately, I have an elevation wheelchair, and I, I can actually use tables like that, but most people can't. And uh, I, I find that really interesting. How just a little bit of policy change at the city level or provincial level could, could really help there. We, we could say that um, you can't have a business license or a liquor license if you don't provide inclusive access for everyone. Did you, call, did you ask them why it was all high-top tables or if they'd even considered that issue? <laughs> yeah, I, I did. And, of course, um, it's the, it, that's why we have to bring awareness to it because, you know, they just really hadn't thought about it. Um, and fair enough, but that's why I think we need, you know, sometimes we need policy um, tools to to help you know make these changes uh, happen across the board all right well jamie borisov thank you so much for joining us today and uh, i'll put that website out again and hopefully more people will take that class and uh, get more some more awareness out there but thanks so much for your time and for being on the show today uh, it was a pleasure, Jill. Great to be here. Thanks. Well, U.S. border officials say facial recognition technology helped them stop a woman who was trying to enter the country at the Pack Highway border crossing using her sister's documents. There was a facial mismatch that was alerted and she was stopped. Well, we wanted to talk more about this. So Len Saunders is with us again, an immigration lawyer with Blaine Immigration. Len, thanks so much for coming back on the show. No problem. How are you, Jill? Very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, I understand you uh, uh, have seen this technology and seen the biometric cameras that are being used. So what are they like? Well, so this is all brand new. So I took a tour of the Peace Arch Port of Entry about a month ago. It was about a week before the full reopening of the U.S. border on November the 8th. And during that tour, they had the head people for the Seattle field office And they mentioned this new facial recognition technique. So this is what they've been doing while the border's been closed, is working on all these new advancements. And so what they mentioned was that for both Americans, Canadians, and other nationalities, when they were coming through, whether they're they're driving through or into secondary, they're using like a handheld device and taking a picture of your face and comparing it to your passport. So a lot of attorneys I was with said, well, how long do you keep this information for? So they were mentioning that for non-Americans, your typical Canadian, they may keep it for days, weeks, months. For Americans, they only keep it for 30 seconds or a minute so that privacy rights aren't violated. But I'm fascinated to see that it was actually an American citizen who they caught using another American's passport versus a foreign national. So it's interesting, you know, here we are less than a month after the border reopened to Canadians, and this technique is obviously doing its job. Yeah, so do they use it on everybody, or is it only when you get taken into secondary inspection? I don't know. Um, It seems like they have this new kind of feature, 
at the primary booth. So I'm assuming everybody who's entering now, there's going to be a picture taken of them, their face. I guess they have to pull down their mask, and they'll take a quick snapshot. And through this new facial recognition software, it'll compare the picture of the person sitting in the vehicle or standing in line inside the building to the actual passport that the officer has swiped through their, uh, I guess, through their computer. It's a fascinating new technology. Uh, it is. And so this person was, I understand, on a bus and trying to use her sister's uh, visa passport, as well as I think her, I think she was trying to get in, according to the news release anyway, she was trying to get in, even though she doesn't meet the vaccine requirements. So something maybe that would have passed when it was just somebody looking at you, but you can't beat the computer. Well, absolutely. And it was funny because one of the officers was mentioning how the Sedin twins, who used to play for the Canucks, they mismatched their passports one time. Mm-hmm. One used one passport, one used the other. And it was actually the twins who figured it out, not the American officers. And they said this kind of technology will make sure that even twins can be recognized who is who, not the, you know, the officer's own like, eye trying to see if the person is who they say they are. Uh, You mentioned, though, that so it says and in the news release, too, it says so new photo comparisons of U.S. citizens will be deleted within 12 hours. Photo comparisons of most foreign nationals will be stored in a secure U.S. Department of Homeland Security system. Should we be concerned, do you think, about privacy or the or why they would need to store them with the Department of Homeland Security? Oh, absolutely. It's a slippery slope. It's like, where does it end? It's going to be DNA testing at some point. Like. You know, when people get upset and say, well, they took my fingerprints, they took my photograph, how do I stop it? I say, well, don't travel over the border. Because I think, you know, as more technology rolls out, I think you're going to see more of of this sort of, you know, facial recognition or other technologies um, on probably both sides of the border, both the American and the U.S. and the Canadian officers, in my opinion. Well, and and they are trying to sell it as a positive thing. I'm not sure what what the impression you got taking the tour, because even in the news release, it says foreign travelers who have traveled to the U.S. previously may no longer need to provide fingerprints because your identity is now being confirmed through this facial biometric process. So like you say, a bit of a slippery slope. It's being sold as a much more a quicker, more efficient way. But where is that information going? Oh, absolutely. And that's what a lot of my colleagues were saying. How long will this information be stored? Who has access to it? What's the differences between Americans who are photographed and other foreign nationals? So, you know, here we are only a month after this technology started and it's already getting news. So it's interesting. Hmm. Uh, d- interesting indeed. Uh, how was the border or how have, have it been? I know we, we talked to you last time uh, about more Canadians coming across the border. Is it still busy there? Oh, absolutely. And today is a Friday. So I've been to the Peace Arch Park three times. I've uh, seen the traffic go all the way past duty-free going into Canada. Blaine is super busy now. So this is definitely not like it was over the last year and a half. So, you know, I'm assuming tomorrow for the first weekend of pretty much the full border opening for Canadians not having to do the PCR test, uh, going back, you're going to see a lot of Canadians coming down to Whatcom County. It's nice to see. All right, Len, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Jill. Have a good weekend.